you would please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. We'll be starting in verse 13. And this is what Matt read earlier this morning. This is the word of God. Verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand I awake and I am still with you. Let's pray. Our Lord, our Father, our God. God, this is exactly how so many of us feel in this room, Lord, that uh, your thoughts are so precious to us, Lord. How vast are the sum of them, Lord. If I would count them, they are more than the sand, yet I awake. This is not a dream. You are true. You are real. You are with us. God, I, I pray, Lord, as we approach this subject this morning of abortion and the sanctity of life, God, that you would uh, give us that reality, Lord, that, that for how big this subject is and for how overwhelming the, the topic is, Lord, that, that we would understand that you are bigger, that you are sovereign, that you are in control, that you are wise, and that we can trust you. God, I pray uh, this morning, Lord, uh, if there is anyone that has had an abortion, Lord, that is uh, with us, Lord, that they would seek your grace. And if they have put their faith in, in your son, Lord, uh, throughout this sermon, they would understand that they are forgiven. God, just like all of us who are sinners, Lord, in need of grace. God, I pray that this morning, that we would feel the weight of this subject that we would understand it well so we can communicate and talk with those, Lord, that may not. But I pray that you're with us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As I'm sure you probably could tell at this point, we are going to be taking a break from the book of Philippians uh, because today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. Um, and so we're going to do a topical sermon this morning on the topic of abortion. And if you're new or a visitor this morning, this is unusual for us. Typically, we take a book of the Bible and just kind of walk through it verse by verse. Uh, today, we're going to be tackling a subject which, again, is unusual for us. But um, once a year, uh, we want to come to this subject and think deeply on it. Uh, and so that's what we'll be doing this morning. Uh, before I get started... I just want to warn you, um, I'm going to be preaching the same, almost the same exact sermon I preached last year. Uh, now, I do this because uh, I can remember growing up here at Country Oaks um, and hearing Pastor Andy's sermon on abortion, and if you grew up here or have been a part of this church for a long time, over and over and over again, uh, pretty much the, the same sermon, uh, different ways, different angles, but for most of us that have been here for years, we probably have that sermon memorized. Um, which is great, 
Because as a kid and a young man, that sermon was ingrained into my heart and mind, and it's really what, what gave such a strong conviction in my life as an adult. And because of that, I'm not ashamed to repeat my words. Um, I th think about it every year Monday comes, and I know I'm going to preach on this subject, and I go, is there a creative way that I can preach something different? And it just hits me that, that I need to get across the truth as clear as I can. And so with that said, if you're a young man or woman or teenager or even a child, I want to be clear, you need to hear these truths. So I have three topics today that I want to address. The first one is this, uh, a worldview where abortion makes absolutely no sense. The second topic or part of the sermon is a worldview where abortion makes sense. And finally, I want to end with some practical things we can do or you can do as an individual even. Uh, so let's start with a worldview where abortion makes absolutely no sense. And of course, this is a biblical worldview. Now, let me just start by explaining what a worldview is. A worldview, real simply, is a way of viewing the world, as the name sounds. It's a way of viewing the world. It's a way of viewing the reality that is around us. And I want to be clear, all of us have a worldview. Every single person, Christian or not a Christian, Buddhist, atheist, it doesn't matter. There is a way that we view the world, and that is your worldview. As Christians, we should have a biblical worldview, meaning we should view reality through the lens of Scripture. That's what a biblical worldview is. It's looking at reality through the biblical knowledge and through uh, what God has revealed to us in his word. And I want to say this, a biblical worldview is a story. When you think about it, the Bible is a story from beginning to end. It's a story. In fact, it's a grand story, or what philosophers call it's a meta-narrative, large story. Meta-narratives are stories that interpret the reality around us, so therefore the, the, the biblical story is what makes sense of the world we live in. It, it's a story that defines who we are. Yet, a biblical worldview is a story that's not about us. In fact, a biblical worldview doesn't even start with us. It starts with God. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. The story is about God. And we have to start here. We have to start with God because a biblical worldview is radically God-centered, not man-centered. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Day one, he created light. Day two, he created the heavens. Day three, he created earth and vegetation. Day four, he created the sun, moon, and stars. Day five, he created living creatures. Day six, he created land animals. And lastly, he created man, which was the pinnacle of God's creation. Meaning, even though this story is not about us, it's about God, man is still the pinnacle of God's creation. Man is valuable and important, even loved by God. Let me show you what I mean. If you would, turn in your scriptures to Genesis 1, verse 26. For a lot of you, or probably all of you, the very first page of scripture. Genesis 1, 26. Which says this. Then God said, let us make man 
This is the very first glimpse of the Trinity that we uh, see in Scripture, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. God says, let us, the three persons of God, make man. Everything else at this point was made by command. Let there be light. Let the waters bring forth. Let the earth bring forth. But, but with man, he says, let us make man. One theologian put it this way, it should be noted that a divine counsel or deliberation preceded the creation of man. Let us make man. This again brings out the uniqueness of man's creation and in connection with no other creature is such a divine counsel mentioned. In other words, everything else was made from God's authority. He just said, let there be light and light existed. He said, let the earth bring forth and plants and animals came forth. They were all made out of his authority, but with man, we see his affection. Let us make man. God counseled with himself before making man. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit made man out of his affection and said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let us, in other words, make man like us. This is the discussion that happened and the agreement that came from it. Our image, our likeness, God made man, in other words, to image God. Meaning, the creation of man glorifies God. And that's why Psalm 139 says this in verse 14, I praise you, I praise God, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made Wonderful are your works. That's a praise to God, not to man. The Bible is radically God-centered. Our worth, our worth comes from God because we were made in the image of God. Which leads to another question. How do we image God? Now, There's a debate on that because Genesis doesn't specifically say exactly how we image God. Maybe it's our reason, our intellect, our will, our emotions, our our language, that we are creatures that have language, our ethics, uh, that we we see right and wrong. But uh, we don't know exactly for sure. Maybe it's all those things. But one thing we know for sure, the Bible is super clear, is that because man images God, man is valued. In fact, Genesis 9, 6 says this, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Therefore, in a biblical worldview, man and animals have similarities. There's similarities between man and animals. Even they were made on the same day, day six. But man was made differently. Man was made with the thumbprint of God. Man was made in the image of God. This is why murder is wrong. Because man has value and dignity, yet it is okay to hunt. There's a difference. Because animals are not made in the image of God. One theologian said this, the reason why murder is here said to be such a horrendous crime so that it must be punished by death is that man who has been murdered is someone who imaged God, reflected God, and was like God and represented God. Therefore, when one kills a human being, 
Not only does he take that person's life, but he hurts God himself. The God who was reflected in that individual, to touch the image of God is to touch God himself. To kill the image of God is to do violence against God himself. In a biblical worldview, human life has dignity and value, and human life is, is more valuable than animal life and plant life because man images God, therefore murders, wrongs, a, a horrendous evil. But also, in a biblical worldview, that value and that image starts in the womb. Now, the Bible is just clear on this. It, it clearly assumes that the unborn baby is a person made in the image of God. Jeremiah 1.5 says this, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Psalm 22.10 says this, On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Psalm 139.13, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Judges 13.7, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then, drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. That's the, the full span of human life that's being assumed there, the womb to death. Isaiah 49.1, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention you peoples for, from afar, the Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. And I can just keep going with verse after verse after verse that just assumes that human life starts in the womb. The Bible is just clear, clear that human life starts in the womb, which leads to another important question. When? When in the womb? When is human life started well, I believe the Bible teaches in a number of places, or at least implies, at conception. Let me just give you one argument. There's a number of arguments you can make for this, but Hebrews 2.17 says this, Therefore he, it's talking about Jesus here, Therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers, like a human, in other words. Jesus was truly human, as we've learned, right? In every respect. Meaning Jesus experienced the, the full span of human existence. In every respect, he was truly human. So here's my question. When did that full span of human existence begin? At conception. Luke 1.30 says this, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now the Greek word conceive here just means become pregnant. The moment, in other words, that Mary became pregnant is when Jesus' human life began. Matthew 1.20 says this, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her here is a different Greek word than the one used in Luke, but this one emphasizes the, the male's role in conception. But either way, Jesus' life clearly started at conception. I mean, think about it. 
if, the Bible claims, if Jesus experienced the full span of human existence in every respect, then the implication is human existence starts at conception. It starts at the beginning of pregnancy. Therefore, in a biblical worldview, human life has dignity and value. And in a biblical worldview, human life and personhood starts at conception, meaning in a biblical worldview, abortion makes absolutely no sense because in a biblical worldview, abortion is murder. definition is the intentional killing of an innocent human. Innocent human. That's why the death penalty isn't murder. That's why if it's a just war and you happen to kill someone in that just war, that's not murder. Innocent human life. Abortion is murder. Albert Moeller writes this. In the world of the Bible, every single human being and all life is sacred because of God. And every single human life is sacred because of every single human being is made in the image of God. You see, in, in the biblical worldview, when, it, when we, uh, we come to understand that every one of us has dignity, not because in ourselves we deserve dignity, but because we are made by a sovereign all-powerful and holy God who made us in his image. Again, the story is about God, not us. But man is valuable. We are valuable because man is made in the image of God. Our value comes, it, it derives, not in what we do, but in who we are important distinction not in what we do but but in who we are made in the image of god and that means value and dignity starts within the womb in a biblical worldview abortion makes absolutely no sense because in a biblical worldview abortion is murder it's a direct and intentional attack on the image of god and by the way this means any form of contraceptives that kill a fertilized egg That's important for us to know because many forms of contraceptives, birth controls, many are abortifacient, meaning they kill a fertilized egg. As Christians, we should stay away from any contraceptive that kills a fertilized egg, and, and that means you should do your research and know. So my first point is this, a worldview where abortion makes no sense is a biblical worldview. Now, Let's look at the next point, a, a worldview where abortion makes sense. And this is a secular worldview, a secular worldview. Now, before I even get start, started and explain this, a worldview that, that abortion makes sense, and I, I want to be very clear. What matters when it comes to the argument about abortion is not what we think or say the fetus is. What matters is what the fetus actually is. If the unborn baby is a person, then abortion is murder, no matter what we think or say. 
no matter what you call the fetus. R.C. Sproul says it, it puts it this way. The fetus is either alive or not alive. The fetus is either human or not human. The fetus is either a person or not a person. What I think the fetus is does not determine what the fetus actually is. If a fetus is a living person, but I don't believe or think that it's a living person, my thoughts have no bearing on what the fetus actually is. Just a side note. Fetus is Latin for unborn human baby. In fact, in 2019, the first time I preached this sermon, I googled fetus, and this is what popped up. An unborn offspring of a mammal, in particular, an unborn human baby. Now, they've changed that since then. So, I just would suggest, if anyone uses the word fetus, just ask them why they're speaking Latin. Just say, hey, why don't we speak English? Unborn human baby. Pastor Andy said this, whether we call abortion murder depends on whether we call the unborn baby a person. But whether abortion is murder depends upon whether the unborn is a person. Being a person and simply being called a person are not the same thing. So this means just because a worldview can make sense of abortion doesn't make abortion right. But let's look at this worldview anyways, because I want you to see the absurdity of this worldview. Listen, any worldview that denies God and his word will end up in absurdity. The presuppositional argument for the existence of God is this. Without God, you can't prove anything at all. You are left with absurdity, nonsense, arbitrary opinion at best, or what Romans 1 calls a debased mind. So let's look at a secular worldview. Let me define it first. The secular worldview is a humanistic philosophy or life stance that embraces empirical observation, that's just a fancy word for your five senses, and human reason, and philosophical naturalism as the foundation of reality while specifically rejecting religious dogmas, supernaturalism, pseudoscience, and superstition as the basis of morality and decision-making. Truth, in other words, this is a secular worldview, truth is found in the natural world, the physical world, through reason and empirical observation, your five senses. Those are the two tools to find truth. Truth is not found in a secular worldview in religion or in supernaturalism, therefore not God or what God has revealed to us, the word of God. So here's the scary question. In a secular worldview, if man doesn't find his value and dignity in imaging God, where does man's value come from? Now, the best answer human, uh, secular, or secular humanism has given us is that man is more evolved, therefore more valuable. This worldview has adopted evolution as its primary theory of man. In other words, it's anthropology, which is the study of man. Anthro-man-ology, study of. The study of man is seen through the lens of evolution. In a secular worldview, man's worth comes from his utility, his abilities. Right? His utility 
developed by evolution. Utility means our, our usefulness, our capabilities, our rationality, our, our self-consciousness, our, our ability to communicate, and so on. Man is more evolved, therefore man is more valuable. Our value comes from, listen, this is important, what we do instead of who we are. Major difference. Our value comes from what we are capable of doing instead of who we are. Now there's two things that are very scary about this logic, and I'll state them as questions. The first one is this. What about human beings that aren't as capable as others? And the second question is this. Who gets to define what utility is? Let's start with the first question. What about human beings that aren't as capable as others? The logical conclusion in this worldview has to be they're not as valuable. Nuclear physicist Winston Duke wrote this. A reasonable philosophy will define a human being as as life, which determines utility, self-awareness, volition, and rationality. Thus, it should be recognized that not all men are human. It would seem to be more inhumane to kill an adult chimpanzee than a newborn baby, since the chimpanzee has greater mental awareness. Again, if our utility is what defines our worth, what we're capable of, then it could be logically argued that an adult chimpanzee is more valuable than a newborn baby because the chimpanzee has more utility, self-awareness, volition, rationality, and so on. And according to Peter, Peter Singer, who was the professor of bioethics, bio, biology, ethics, he was the professor of bioethics at Princeton University, which, by the way, used to be a Christian university. In fact, it used to be a seminary that trained pastors. Not anymore. To say otherwise, to say that uh, human beings are more valuable um, just because they're human, to say otherwise amounts to what he calls speciesism. Like racism, but for species. Speciesism. Again, if if man doesn't get his value from imaging God, where does that lead? Peter Singer believes this. Those who regard the interest of a woman as overriding the merely potential interest of the fetus are taking their stand on a morally secure position. In other words, abortion is morally justifiable, and here's the logic. The fetus is so incapable so incapable, has so little utility that the mere preference of the mother is more valuable than the fetus. And that's just typical pro-abortion logic. But here's where that logic will inevitably lead. It's just a matter of time. Peter Singer, again, someone who's consistent and at least honest, he says this, Furthermore, the situation is unchanged for the newborn child who does not understand what life is about and therefore can have no preference in the matter. If no one else has a preference that the child should live, in other words, no one wants that child, infanticide within the first month of life can be morally justified. A child may not be wanted for various reasons such as timing, gender, and or inherited diseases. 
professor of bioethics at Princeton University. If, again, we get our worth from our capabilities, our utility, then what about human beings that aren't as capable as others, the unborn, infants, elderly, the mentally handicapped? In a secular worldview, at best, there isn't a straightforward answer to this question. At worst, you can argue that they're not fully human, not as valuable. This leads to my second question, and this is the scarier, in my opinion, of the two questions. If utility, our, our capabilities again, if utility determines our worth, what we do, not who we are, then who gets to define what utility is? During the time of Roe versus Wade in 1973, there are two very influential books on bioethics, again, life ethics, written by a man named Joseph Fletcher, a professor at, of bioethics at Harvard University. Again, at one time was a seminary, Christian University. In these two books, Joseph Fletcher identified personhood with a minimal degree of human consciousness and intelligence, roughly a minimum score of 20 on a Bennett IQ scale. Obviously, he says, a fetus cannot meet this test no matter what its stage of growth. Therefore, abortion is morally justified. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. How arbitrary is that? 20 on an IQ test. Why not 21? Why not 25? Why not 19? Who made this man God to determine that 20 on an IQ test is what gives man his personhood, value, and dignity? Listen, again, if man doesn't get his worth from an outside source, an authority above man, a.k.a. God, then man is the one who gets to define value and personhood. He becomes the ultimate authority. And here's where it gets scary. If man, not God, is the one who defines value and personhood, then man has the ability to change that definition. And history has proven that man is more than willing to do so. And I can go through a long list uh, of different countries and groups and cultures that have changed the definition of value and personhood. But let me just give you the, uh, the one that we all know and are familiar with. Hitler did it in Nazi Germany. One historic historian wrote this. In the 20th century, we can look at a, a long parade of horrible terrors. And one of the easiest to identify is the medical ethics of Germany before and during the Third Reich. There the Germans actually had a medical philosophy called life unworthy of life that formed the foundation to their murderous atrocities. The Germans actually came up with a graduation of life. And the life that was worthy of life was Aryan life. It was the life of those who they considered to be physically and genetically superior, who could contribute, listen to this, utility, who can contribute to the welfare and the defense of the policies of the Third Reich. Sound familiar? It's the same worldview. 
man's utility and his capability for the life worthy of life. But what about the life unworthy of life? The life unworthy of life are the gypsies, homosexuals, mentally retarded, the physical, physically disabled, and the Jews. Albert Muller comments on this. He says this. If we look back at the agents of medicine and doctors turned into agents of death rather than agents of life. It is because they bought into a worldview, a way of viewing reality, a worldview in which there was a progression from life that was worthy of life to life that is unworthy of life. Well, if you can do that in terms of Jews and uh, in terms of gypsies and in terms of others, then you can certainly do it in terms of various stages of human development. If man, not God, if man is the one who defines value and personhood, then man has the ability to change that definition. Nazi Germany did it, life unworthy of life. Modern America is doing it. The unborn baby is life unworthy of life. In the secular worldview, abortion makes sense because the unborn child is a life unworthy of life unless the parents want it. It's a worldview that has made it possible for 21% of all pregnancies in the U.S. to end in abortion. It's a worldview that has seen well over 60 million lives killed since 1973. Uh, we don't even know where that number is now because the pill is becoming the way everyone permits abortion. That's, that's a whole generation gone. And that's just America. A whole generation of Americans gone. You guys are bigger than most nations. If you want to talk about racism too, out of that 60 million, the, the, the mass majority African Americans. One of the most racist things we've done as a country is just ex exterminate African Americans. Listen, worldviews matter. They matter. How you view the world and the reality around us matters, meaning theology and doctrine matters because it's theology the study of god the study of scripture and the doctrine that comes out of scripture is what shapes our worldview and what's crazy to me out of all the statistics that i looked up and i've been doing this sermon there's one that i think that bothers me the most that shocks me the most and, and this i found in 2019 so i don't know how much this has changed but in 2019 when i first preached this sermon only 48% of self-identified evangelicals, and that's specific, evangelicals, only 48% strongly agreed with the following statement. Abortion is sin. That's not even saying abortion is murder. It's just saying abortion is sin. Only 48% of evangelicals agreed to that in 2019, meaning 52 disagreed or are agnostic about it. Listen, the statement abortion is sin is a deeply theological statement. 
the least we can do as Christians is call abortion what it truly is, murder. Remember, what matters when it comes to the argument about abortion is not what we think the fetus is. It's what the fetus actually is that matters. If the unborn baby is truly a person, then abortion is murder. Period. Let's just look at the evidence. We looked at what scripture said, and I did that on purpose because this is our ultimate authority. Ultimate authority clearly says that murder is wrong, it's evil, and human life starts at conception. But what does reason and empirical observations actually teach us? What do our five senses, and using our five senses, uh, observations, and, and reason actually teach us about the unborn baby? We shouldn't be surprised. They completely agree with Scripture. The unborn embryo has its complete, separate genetic code at conception. Meaning the, un, the embryo, the unborn embryo, has a biological fingerprint. That's what biologists would say. At conception, there is a unique individual. Their hair color, their eye color, their height, all of that is established at conception. Neither the, the egg or sperm has all the human genetic characteristics alone. They each have 23 chromosomes. But, but at the moment of conception, they're combined to make 46 so, so that a unique individual human begins the process of personal development. And nothing from that point on in the genetic makeup of that person changes from conception. We have the same biological fingerprint. Each and every one of you has the same exact biological fingerprint in your cells that started at conception. By the way, isn't that amazing? That's why the Bible says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. From conception on, knitted together in our mother's womb, glory be to God. Wonderful are his works. The only change that takes place is the, is the growth and development of a particular human individual. The process of growth and development that, that this individual undergoes continues into infancy, childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. If you brought a newborn baby up here and I was ho holding a newborn baby, there's obvious difference between me and the newborn baby. But we're both equally valuable because we're both made in the image of God. There's just a difference in development. Thus, fertilization or conception is at the point which a new human life begins. After three weeks, before most women know that they're pregnant, there is a discernible heartbeat. At this point, the heart circulates blood within the embryo that is not the mother's blood, but the blood of the unborn baby has produced. After about six weeks, the embryo is still less than an inch long but has undergone considerable development. Fingers have formed on the hands. At 43 days, the unborn baby has, a detecti has detectable brain waves. After six and a half weeks, the embryo is moving. However, because of the tiny size of the embryo and the thickness of the mother's abdominal wall, uh, she does not sense movement until seven weeks later. By the end of nine weeks, the fetus has developed a unique set of fingerprints 
and sexual organs have appeared, by the end of 12 weeks, all the organs of the body are functional. And this all happens in the first three months of pregnancy, the first three months. And you're telling me without a shadow of a doubt, human doubt, human life doesn't start with a man? Listen. I'm going to say something that's somewhat controversial, if I haven't yet. It is obvious to everybody. Every single person in America. I don't care what line of politics you line, line, land on. It is obvious to everyone that human life starts in the womb. It is obvious to everyone. Just like it's obvious to, to every single person that there's a difference between a man and a woman... I don't care what you say. It is obvious to everyone that the unborn baby is a person. A unique individual that is fully human. To say otherwise is just suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And that's what our nation has done for well over 50 years. Remember, you can call a baby whatever you want. You can call a baby a fetus that doesn't change the reality that human life starts at conception. Let me put it another way. In colonial America, you can call an African American whatever you want, but that didn't change the reality of what an African American was, was truly. A human being made in the image of God. To say otherwise was just suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And I'll tell you what, everyone in colonial America knew that. And they suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. They knew African Americans were human. In Nazi Germany, you could call a Jew whatever you want. But that didn't change the reality of what a Jew was, it truly was. A human being made in the image of God. To say otherwise is just suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 1. Listen, every single person in Germany knew that Jews were humans. And they suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. In modern America, you can call an unborn baby whatever you want. But that doesn't change the reality of what the unborn baby truly is human being made in the image of God to say otherwise is just suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Albert Muller writes this. Abortion is an issue that must just shear the nation's conscience. Abortion is an issue that is so real and relevant right now. Right now there are babies being terminated in the womb. Abortion is such a a critical issue for us, however, because as Christians, we know that it's a gospel issue. And we know that, that right now, it is not just a baby that's being terminated. It's not just a pregnant that's being ended. It's a, it's a life that is known by God before God made it in the womb. It is a life that is being destroyed. And brothers and sisters, as, as much as that must motivate us to action, as much as that, that must simply shear our conscience into a state whereby we cannot be satisfied until this plague on our country is brought to an end, 
As much as, it, as that is all these things, it is also that which drives us back to the cross, to the gospel, and back to the realization that, that, only, that the only one who can bring life out of death is the one who is the author of life and death. And this brings us right back to God. Let me end today with one final point or part of this sermon. I, I've preached this enough times to know that that we shouldn't end here because there's a hopeless feeling if you end here. And so I want to end with some practical things you can do. Practical things you can do. And I have five practical things you can do. And the first one is this. You can vote. That's the simplest and easiest one. You can vote. We know laws will not change a, a person's heart. You can't legislate morality. You've probably heard that before, and it's true. But laws can discourage and regulate murderous behavior. Martin Luther King is famous for saying this. We hear the familiar cry that morals can't be legislated. This may be true, but behavior can be regulated. The law may not be able to make a man love me, but can keep him from lynching me. In a very similar way, anti-abortion laws may not be able to change people's minds and hearts about the rightness and wrongness of abortion, but they can keep people from murdering the unborn. I'm thankful that Roe versus Wade was overturned. Never thought that would happen. I was born in the middle of it. Just thought it was going to be a reality that would haunt our nation forever. I'm thankful that it was overturned, but if you trace that back, it was largely overturned because people voted. They voted for a conservative president, and he appointed conservative justices. So let me be clear, voting made a difference. And you might be asking yourself right now, or maybe angry with me, because you might be saying, well, what's this have to do with Sunday morning, Nathan? We need to get the politics out of the pulpit and out of the church. Listen, I rarely talk about politics. If you've been here long enough, you know that. But, but I want to be clear. The biblical worldview is all-consuming. It touches every aspect of our lives, meaning it touches how we vote and how we think about politics. Here's why politics, what politics has to do with our Christian walk and why I bring it up right now. We have been given a unique opportunity throughout the history of mankind. We have been given the opportunity and privilege to take, take part in the direction our government is going by voting. And I think one day when we meet God, we will be held accountable by him in how we participate, in how we vote. Therefore, vote. Now, with that said, this is my first practical thing you can do, but in some ways, I think it's the least important. Second, submit yourself to God. Submit yourself to God. Our culture is heading down a direction that can only be stopped by the gospel. In fact, I think our, our country is being judged by God right now. 
has given us over to a debased mind, Romans 1. Up is down, down is up, good is evil, and evil is good right now in our culture. That's God saying, if that's what you want, you can have it. And that's wrath. It's judgment. That means, for how important voting is, for how important politics is, it's only a band-aid. It's only a band-aid. And it's a small band-aid being used to to try to stop a a massive gaping wound. The bigger issue is man's heart. So the second thing you can do is submit yourself to God. Meaning trust God, put your faith in Him, obey Him, delight in Him, follow Him, be a Christian in other words. Boldly share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ which is the power of God for salvation, Romans 1.16. The gospel has the power to completely turn this world upside down, and it was first service that I thought about this. If our world is upside down right now, it has the power to put it back the way it should be. It did it in the first century. The Roman culture and the nation of Rome was an ugly pagan nation. Ugly gospel turned it into the cradle of Christianity. So submit yourself to God. Third thing you can do. If you have had an abortion, which in a room this large, I know there's a number. If you have had an abortion or been a part of an abortion, man, and you have put your faith in Christ, trust that you are forgiven. You are forgiven. If you have put your faith in Christ, your sins are forgiven. Don't let the guilt of your sin make you ineffective for the kingdom. It's exactly what Satan would want. He wants you to be quiet about it, feel that you're unworthy to do anything, and just feel the guilt and just be ineffective. Listen, we're all unworthy to do anything. (laughs) Join the club. (laughs) We're all sinners saved by grace. Trust and rest in God's forgiveness. Be free from the guilt and shame, not because you're such a good person, but only because Christ has freed you from that guilt. Let me be clear. If you're not a Christian this morning and you've had an abortion, you have guilt. Not the feeling of guilt, true guiltiness. And therefore, you need to trust in Christ. Christ came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, and whoever believes in him will be forgiven. That sin will be paid for on the cross. So trust in him. He was raised on the third day. He's been uh, ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is Lord of Lord and King of Kings to this day. Put your faith in him. But if you have put your faith in Christ, your sins are forgiven. Psalm 103.12 says this, As far as the east is from the west, how far is that? It's just as, as far as could be. It's infinite. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Trust in God's grace. Fourth, fourth thing you can do. Support alternatives to abortion. Support alternatives to abortion. Support adoption. Maybe adopt yourself. Maybe support those who are adopting. It's become very expensive. Maybe give them money. Adoption is, is, is amazing, and, and 
for a number of us that have been adopted, me including. I'm so thankful for you. Also, support those that find themselves in unplanned pregnancies. Let's not just preach. Let's actually do. Support those. Love on them. I don't care if it's their sin that got them there. Love on them anyways. Use your resources to help young ladies and men that have found themselves in an unplanned pregnancy. Help them get started in life. Maybe help them see other choices. Plead for individual lives, uh, the unborn, the innocents, by our love and compassion for those moms and dads that have found themselves in, in a difficult situation. And this brings me to the last thing we can do. Pray. The last and most important, I said voting is the simplest and easiest, but that's not true. Praying. You know, abortion is one of those unseen evils. Slavery was seen, extermination of, of the Jews was seen, but abortion is behind closed doors. It's unseen. And so we need not to forget that it is happening. And we need to be praying. It's going to be in our face this next year, obviously, as we see a, a, a political season coming our way. And who knows what we're storing up? Every time you think about it, pray. Make a point, a plan to pray. Pray earnestly and regularly for abortion to end. Listen, I know this topic's overwhelming. I'm overwhelmed every time I preach this sermon, every time I think about where we are as a country. I know it's overwhelming, but listen, God is bigger. He's bigger. Pray for a revival in our country and culture. That we would repent from our sins trust and turn to God who is gracious and merciful. Let's pray. Let's do that now. Oh God, our Father, our Lord, I know this topic is overwhelming. I know it's controversial and it's becoming more and more controversial. I know it's getting harder to speak the truth in. And there's more anger out there than there's ever been. Yet we have been called to be your ambassadors, to, to preach truth, to proclaim truth, Lord, but we are to do it in a way that's loving, compassionate, and kind. Help us to balance those things, that we would speak truth in love, that people would see our love, that it wouldn't be just in words, Lord, but it would be in action, that that if we find a, a, someone that has an unplanned pregnancy, Christian or not, Lord, that we would surround that person with love, compassion, maybe gifts and financial help, whatever we can do, Lord. God, that we would be consistently in prayer, that this plague on our nation would be, be eradicated, would be gone. God, how dare us judge countries like Nazi Germany who have exterminated 12 million Jews when we have killed well over 60 million Jews. Help us feel that weight in reality. And help us turn to you, God, for the answer. That we know that you are sovereign. We know that you are good, Lord. And that we know you're working in our country, even if it's judgment. God, but we pray for revival. 
we pray that we would face the reality that is so obvious that that the unborn life is truly a human that we would see that know what we have done repent and ask for forgiveness knowing that you are merciful and you are good that's our prayer in your son's name